Welcome, Dr. Riemann, to our podcast, Roadmap to Joy. Thank you. I appreciate it, Alex. Dr. Brad Riemann is Embark's senior clinical advisor and is a member of our clinical advisory council. He participates in clinical quality activities and makes recommendations to embark on care, treatment, and services. His extensive experience in mental health positions help him advise us on clinical curriculum, practice guidelines, and specialty clinical programs such as obsessive compulsive disorders, autism spectrum disorder, substance use disorder, and eating disorders. Dr. Riemann really has an impressive resume. He's been specializing in OCD and OCD-related disorders for over 35 years and is considered one of the foremost OCD experts and clinicians across the world. In fact, Dr. Riemann is widely regarded in the healthcare community for helping more people recover from OCD than any other clinician in America. One of the many areas we at Embark have found alignment with Dr. Riemann is his significant contributions to measurement-based care and standardizations of care. He's a prolific researcher and serves as a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the International Obsessive Compulsive Disorder Foundation, acting as expert consultant to the Organization on Research Matters. And in fact, his research has been published in nearly 100 articles in professional journals, which is particularly impressive given he is someone who is in the practice setting, not the research or academic setting. Suffice to say, Embark is fortunate to have Dr. Riemann as a clinical leader and partner. Welcome, Dr. Riemann. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Alex, and I'm, I'm so excited to partner with, with Embark. I mean, it, it's such a mission-driven organization, and certainly that's a real credit to you and your leadership team. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Riemann. Well, you know, there's so much we could talk about, but what I would love to do is to focus this conversation on teens and young adults with OCD and their family and parents that are looking for ways to support them. It's really a unique disorder and very debilitating condition. There's also so many misunderstandings, as I'm sure you're going to share with us, and it's very commonly misdiagnosed. And often parents will do things, though well-intended, that can enable the disorder as well. So it's great to be able to spend time with you to hopefully provide some content for parents to help their children who may be struggling with this issue. So maybe first off to lay the groundwork, how would you define OCD at a more high level? Yeah. So uh, OCD is characterized by obsessions and compulsions, Alex. And, and obsessions are these unwanted thoughts, images, or urges that generate high levels of anxiety. So some common examples might be the fear of becoming dirty or contaminated by coming in contact with things in your normal daily environment or doubting whether you did something or did something correctly. Did I turn off the stove? Did I do that math problem right? Did I lock the door? Uh, compulsions, on the other hand, are some sort of repetitive act. And and typically, it is some sort of behavioral act that we can observe, something that someone feels compelled to do to try to neutralize that unwanted obsessional thought or to get rid of the anxiety that it causes. So this might be something like in response to, uh, say, the, the fear of dirty, becoming dirty and contaminated, washing and cleaning over and over again. But compulsions can also be uh, a, another thought. I mean, it can be something that we can't observe, something that someone does silently in their own mind, again, in an attempt to prevent something bad from happening or to get rid of that anxiety that is caused by that obsessional thought. So it's important to think about it as really a two-part problem, obsessions and compulsions. 
That makes a lot of sense in providing the clarity on uh, OCD isn't necessarily always something that's outward and something mm-hmm. that can be visible to others around you. Uh, and also I, what I found interesting is a lot of the examples you gave, uh, I've dealt with myself and probably most people have dealt with themselves. The question is, you know, what are some of those common misconceptions with OCD and misdiagnoses where some people think they may have it or may think they don't have it is uh, just because I have uh, certain thoughts uh, about something that may be stressing me out doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that I have uh, diagnosable OCD. What have you seen in your work that are some of the most common misconceptions and what leads to uh, misdiagnoses and how should people yeah. be thinking about it in terms of w- when are the those behaviors uh, maybe something that more represents OCD than uh, just typical thoughts and behaviors that people may have? Yeah, great questions. And, you know, I th- there are some that really believe that OCD is a great, great exaggeration of the norm. Uh, you know, to your point, Alex, um, everyone uh, has probably washed their hands from time to time when they just felt dirty. Everyone has gone back and and checked a door lock, even though they were quite certain that they had closed that door and locked it. Uh, so some people, again, feel it's just a, a tremendous, but I do emphasize the word tremendous, exaggeration of the norm. Point simply being is if we go back to our two-point, uh, two-part definition, obsessions and compulsions. The obsessional part, Alex, seems to be universal. I mean, everyone gets unwanted thoughts from time to time. Um, and, and it just seems that, again, this exaggeration of the norm where someone with OCD has so many of those thoughts and does so many repetitive compulsions, whether it's checking, washing, counting, cleaning, whatever it might be, that it creates interference or disorder in their life. And then that's when someone like me says, well, you have obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, it, but again, to your point, everyone's, you know, this, a, a lot of these symptoms kind of ring bells and say, yeah, I've done that from time to time. But, you know, when your child or young adult starts to do, uh, you know, starts to have so, uh, these issues so much that it creates this interference in their life, you know, that's when it really is time to be thinking about uh, getting an assessment and perhaps uh, treatment. But uh, it is commonly misdiagnosed, as you as you said. And, and the real error, I guess, here is that just because someone does or thinks something over and over and over again does not make it obsessive compulsive disorder. And, you know, like the media and lay people, you know, really kind of misunderstand that. And, and a perfect example, Alex, is, you know, kind of excessive video game playing. You know, I've gotten phone calls from parents saying, oh, you know, Dr. Riemann, you're an expert in OCD. My son has OCD. I'm so sorry to hear that. What sort of symptoms he has? He cannot stop playing video games. And I'll say, well, you know, I never say never, but chances are that's actually not OCD. And they'll say, well, I don't understand. He's thinking about them all the time. He can't stop playing them. It's, he can't go to school. It's interfering with his social life. The difference is, again, if we go back to the definition of an obsession, it's an unwanted thought, right? Whereas if you ask Johnny, do you like thinking about playing video games? He says, yep. And do you like playing video games? Yep. It's a problem and it can be a serious problem, but in a way it's almost kind of the opposite. And and so again, the take home message is just because you think or do something over and over again does not make it OCD. Great take home message. And 
How about on the flip side in terms of kind of undiagnosed uh, OCD? So some people may think they have it, but it's not really there. How about those that are struggling and kind of day to day and, and may not be aware how much it's getting in the way of their daily functioning work and relationships and others may not be aware of it too, or perhaps are, uh, how should we think about OCD that's uh, undiagnosed? Yeah, great, great question again. Uh, you know, first and foremost, we got to keep in mind that people with OCD, for the most part, do have some level of insight into their symptoms. And as a result, they fear embarrassment. Um, you know, they really are quite good at hiding their symptoms, even from their parents or their teachers or their spouse. Um, you know, we've gone into the classroom and spoken to teachers, of course, after obtaining proper consent. And teachers say, gosh, we had no idea you know, that Johnny had these problems. Because again, Johnny, uh, he might be washing his hands like mad at home, but, you know, he is not going to display these symptoms in front of his friends. And so he's kind of sweating bullets all day long at school um, because, again, just this fear of, of, of embarrassment. So you have this tendency for people with OCD to not discuss this stuff. They tend to hide it. They tend to keep it to themselves. Um, most people who come into an OCD treatment program, for example, will say, I've never met anyone else who had this problem. I've never been able to talk with someone else who has this problem. So there's this tremendous relief and kind of normalization, if you will, uh, when patients do come in. But uh, so this is a, a problem that is common. It's also commonly misdiagnosed. And then there are many, many people who are, are, are suffering in silence because of, again, this fear of embarrassment and not wanting to discuss this with friends, family, whatever, even to the point of not uh, wanting to discuss it with their mental health care providers. So they might have engaged in mental health care. Uh, I've gotten calls, you know, hey, Dr. Eamon, yeah, this is Dr. Smith. I have this patient who has OCD. Uh, I've been seeing them for three years. They just told me last night they have OCD. Well, what were you treating them for? Depression. So they were even afraid to admit this type of issue even to their mental health care provider. Hmm. And uh, what kind of uh, advice would you give or what would you suggest for those friends or family members that that think that somebody may be struggling with OCD, but they're not yeah. sure? Particularly, it's, it's difficult uh, somewhat because of not only a stigma, but also fairly common in our society for somebody to say, oh, I'm... I'm, I'm being a little OCD right now or stop being so OCD and we throw it around flippantly is uh, how can we have a more serious conversation with somebody and get over that stigma to figure out if we should be trying to find uh, more help for that family member or for that child? Yeah. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, it, it has become a little bit of a, a, a you know, just a, a coined phrase that people kind of do throw out there. And and it really, um, you know, unfortunately, woefully uh, underestimates the pain and suffering that people with OCD go through. Um, you know, at the top of this podcast, you had mentioned the, the, how disabling it can be. And it, uh, the World Health Organization, or WHO, has rated it as the 10th leading cause of disability in the world, Alex. And, the, and they're not just talking about behavioral health problems. They're actually talking about medical problems such as anemia and falls, all these things. OCD is a tenth leading cause of disability. So it's, it's very disabling, very impairing, causes a lot of pain and suffering. Uh, and, you know, when, when a loved one 
starts to feel that maybe something's off. Uh, maybe they start to pick up on some of these symptoms. Again, keeping in mind, it's a two-part problem, obsessions and compulsions. If you start picking that up, I, you know, I think the, the best thing to do is to approach your loved one, have a conversation with them, you know, ask them if they're having issues. Um, hopefully they would feel comfortable in confiding in their parent or sibling or whatever it might be. The other thing that I would suggest, and you had mentioned the International OCD Foundation, uh, their website is a tremendous wealth of psychoeducation material. I mean, they, they, they go into great length of what it is, what it's not, what to do, uh, you know, how to talk with a loved one. And, um, you know, certainly that's another thing that someone could do just to even inform themselves a little bit, you know, hey, I don't know, is this OCD, isn't it? Is it normal? You know, going there and, and, and reading up a little bit on some of the resources they have um, can be very, very helpful. And then when talking with a family or friend, you know, perhaps even suggesting that they go on the Internet. And there are other uh, organizations as well. But, you know, the IOCDF is really kind of that clearinghouse for information for patients and their families. Great. Appreciate that. We'll put the, a link to that, those resources yeah. Yeah. in the show notes. Um, can I ask you to maybe do... A little bit of role playing, sure. And uh, you you can assume either I'm your child or uh, a friend, and okay. you you observe pretty serious OCD behaviors, and you're not mm -hmm. sure if I am uh, if I have been diagnosed, and maybe I am seeing somebody, but you feel like I need to hear something from you for us to be able to start to have a more serious conversation. Uh, would you mind doing that and as a way? Think about sure. uh, parents and uh or a loved one or an older sibling is they want to bring it up they're not sure exactly what words how, how do i bring it up and how do i start that conversation how would you do that uh maybe yeah. if you could do that with me right now sure 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 yeah you know and, and just to preface it i mean you know there's really no right or wrong way of going about doing this for the most part, I mean, um, you know, and, and if someone goes about this in a compassionate and empathetic way, you know, I think nothing but good things are going to happen. Now, maybe not immediately, but at some point, you know, that conversation is going to register with someone and they're going to realize that, you know, hey, you're a you're a trusted person who cares about me. But, yeah, you know, I think the, the my suggestions more specifically, you know, you know, I would approach you, Alex, and just say, hey, look, you know, I was noticing that you were kind of getting stuck over there uh, and having trouble, um, you know, with that door lock or, or I, I noticed you, you know, you were avoiding touching things at the dinner table and then had to go and wash a couple of times during the meals. And, you know, and, and I don't know what's going on, Alex. You know, I, uh, I'm just doing this because I care about you. Um, and, uh, it just seems like you were really struggling. So is something up, you know, I mean, is there something going on? Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a person you can trust. I'm a person you can confide in. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming I'm a lay person, you know, I don't really know, uh, you know, but I, I, I am aware of this condition known as obsessive compulsive disorder. And it, it just a little bit, I know of it. It seems like maybe some of these things are relevant for you, but again, you know, please feel free to to talk with me, whatever you say, I'll keep to myself. I won't share with your parents or, you know, unless you give me permission to do so, but, you know, I'm here for you. Um, I, I can listen. Um, I, I can try to help you in any way, shape or form. 
I'm not trying to exaggerate what was going on, but it did seem like you were really struggling. And it just gave me a sense that this is kind of a something, you know, I, your parents had told me that you were kind of struggling with a few things and, and, you know, if nothing else, uh, maybe you could talk to some friends or a school counselor, but I'm always here for you and, and we'll help you in any way that I can. Great. Great. Nice work. You know, I think it's part of it is, uh, you know, like you mentioned is we can get in our own way when we feel like we're trying to accomplish something. Like I'm trying yeah. to get you to do something or versus just saying, I'm here to talk. I see you. I accept you. That yeah. allows that person to uh, feel more comfortable. And it may be that they don't want to talk to you about it, but yeah. that experience of acceptance will allow them to talk to the person they did want to, who yeah. wasn't able to tell them those words, but they feel like I really want to yeah. tell this person. And because you helped me feel accepted in the situation, now I feel comfortable telling them. And so I think it's a great way to uh, engage with a friend or even even a, ch a child in that way it's is uh, yeah. just it's it maybe it maybe it's one of many conversations maybe it's one and nothing comes up for a couple of weeks and then they say hey dad you remember you brought that up and you saw me during this break that I was doing this thing can, can we talk a little bit more about that and it, exactly um, yeah and you don't need to be a trained mental health care provider to you know to reach out and to show somebody compassion and empathy right and and um, you know, to your point too, it may not have that immediate impact. Uh, they might get defensive. They might, you know, it, 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 it might stress them out, but they're going to remember that you cared about them. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and like you said, a week later, two weeks later, a month later, you know, they, they may let their guard down and have a conversation. with you. So tell me a little bit about, uh, the environment, uh, and maybe parenting. How much does the environment and parenting play first of all into the development of OCD in the first place, uh, or to what yeah. extent are we born with it, and and to what extent does that environment or parenting uh, make it better or make it worse? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Alex, I mean, we're all products of our past, right? And so you know, uh, parents have a tremendous impact on who we are and who we're not, and and so forth. But um, OCD. Uh, first and foremost, we don't know what causes OCD. We're, we're just really learning more and more about it each year. The evidence that comes out of research every year is pointing more and more to a neurobiological abnormality that appears to be, at least in part, genetically influenced. So uh, when you're talking about parents and you're talking about genetics, you know, obviously what that means is that, at least in part, um, you know, this was passed on. OCD tends to run in families, right? Um, it does not appear, though, to be really kind of parenting in and of itself. And so, for example, when you look at adoption studies, and so say you have someone who is adopted, who there's positive biological family history of OCD, and they're adopted into a family that is OCD-free, they are more likely to have OCD because of that biological influence. Vice versa is also true. If your biological parents um, were OCD free and you're adopted into a family that is positive for OCD, you're not going to develop OCD. You can't really make someone uh, OCD. So it does seem to be neurobiologically abnormality that's influenced, at least in part genetically. Uh, but again, we are all pro products of our, our past and, and influenced uh, in the environments that we br are, are brought up in. But um, 
you know, the, the biggest thing that seems to be involved with the parents, and you had mentioned this in some of your opening remarks, is this concept of what we call family accommodation. And it, you are absolutely right. It is always very, very well intended to begin with. Um, none of us like to see our children or our loved ones in distress. Um, OCD causes lots of distress. And so parents uh, try to kind of run to the rescue of their children. So they start opening doors for their kids so that they don't have to touch a door handle that appears to be contaminated. They start trying to help them in other ways. And initially, it does allow uh, Johnny to kind of sidestep their OCD and get on with whatever it is that they're trying to do, get to their little league game on time type of thing. Um, but what it ultimately does, those kind of fan the flame of OCD and it actually literally makes the severity of the OCD worse and reduces the response to treatment unless addressed. Um, and so uh, that is one way that unfortunately families can kind of make the situation more difficult. But again, it's, 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 it's natural. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it myself, right? Or you. We care about our kids. We love our kids. We don't want to see them in distress. But it has this kind of paradoxical effect. It has this kind of opposite negative impact on the OCD in the long run. So it has to be addressed in treatment. Yeah, that I think that's a great point of uh, just, you know, well-intended. And uh, it's even when you have a child, for example, that struggles in in social situations, you, you almost mm -hmm. want to go and talk to them or mm -hmm. pull them aside because yep. you don't like to see them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so what would you say uh, if as a family member, as a parent, if in that case where we got to get to the baseball game or we got to get to school on time, we're going to be late yep. again instead of accommodating, what yeah. should I do instead? Yeah, great question. And, and it's not an easily answered one. I'll just say that right from the get-go. But, you know, in the context of treatment, right? And so we've been talking about you know, OCD being a two-part problem, obsessions and compulsions, and, the, and the, the treatment of choice or the gold standard of treatment is something called exposure and response prevention. So uh, it's a two-part problem with a two-part solution. So the exposure is geared toward the obsessions. The response prevention, or some people refer to it as ritual prevention, is targeting the compulsion. So again, two-part problem, two-part solution. If a, if a family is engaged in that type of treatment, then their clinician, their provider will be instructing them in kind of a series of steps to address and reduce accommodation. Um, it's tricky, Alex, if you try to do this without being in that context of treatment. And let me tell you why. You know, if uh, that child is, is going to become quite dependent on that accommodation. And if, if parents were to just say, okay, look, you know, I listened to this podcast, this Riemann guy said accommodation's bad. Starting tomorrow, we're just not doing it anymore, right? That's not going to go so well. I mean, it, it could cause World War III in the house. It could cause a tremendous rush of distress for that young one because, again, they've become dependent on it. So it's something that, uh, you know, I think families need to note has to be addressed. I would encourage them to reach out to a provider to try to get some assistance on kind of a stepwise approach to uh, reducing and ultimately eliminating that. But just pulling the rug out from under them probably is not going to go so well. 
Yeah, great advice. Uh, how uh, earlier you had mentioned about uh, that colleague of yours that had been treating a, a client for three years and found out that they had OCD. How common are co-occurring disorders like depression no. with o OCD? And, and how should a parent think about treating these co-occurring issues? Is yeah. Should one uh, be more important than the other? Should both be handled at yeah. the same time? Should I be going to find an OCD expert or should I find a depression expert? Sometimes yeah. they're the same. A lot of times they're yeah. not. Or maybe there's other yeah. anxiety issues or there yeah. could be substance use issues or eating disordered eating issues is how often do you find co-occurring uh, disorders and how should parents think about uh, seeking help for their child? Yeah, great, great question. So comorbidity is the rule when it comes to OCD, but keep in mind, you know, uh, behavioral health issues do kind of cluster. So, I mean, it's not, it's not just an OCD issue. Uh, it's pretty common. For someone who has, you know, issues in one area of their life to potentially have it in another. But pertaining to OCD, comorbidity is the rule, meaning most studies find that children with OCD have about 60% of kids uh, with OCD will have at least one additional diagnosis. Uh, the, the really common comorbidities in kids, ADHD, tick disorders, depression, as you mentioned, other anxiety disorders. Uh, so it is pretty common. And, um, you know, some of these things like the depression, Alex, seems to be kind of secondary to OCD. In other words, it, as you learn more about OCD, it, it, it's not really a question as to why is somebody sad and feeling hopeless and helpless. It's a bad thing to have, right? And so I think quite naturally, it starts to pull people's mood down. So depression, for example, is commonly secondary to the OCD. And what I mean by that is if you get into good treatment, if you, if, and, and, and treatment for OCD is really kind of the, you want high quality exposure and response prevention, but you also need the right dose uh, of it. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But if, if you're getting um, high quality treatment for their OCD and their OCD symptoms go down, the depression tends to go along with it more often than not. I mean, they're depressed because they're anxious, right? And so the good news is there is you, you know, you can kind of get a little two for one, but some of these other things that you brought up are freestanding problems. And uh, at times there may be some treatment overlap. A clinician treating your OCD could maybe just pivot the treatment plan slightly to be able to address some of these other conditions. And then some of them may need some expertise that your OCD provider might not have. Um, and, and so then there, there may need to be uh you know, a referral uh, elsewhere. And, and the, the order of that treatment also depends. I mean, again, if it's a primary OCD, that really means that it is the number one problem causing interference in your child's life, then that should be the priority. Um, and, and, and these other things uh, can, can, can wait. Um, now, it also depends, get back to the dose for, for a moment. You know, we, we talk about dose of treatment all the time when we think about medication. 20 milligrams of this versus 40 milligrams of this. Dose rarely comes up, Alex, when we're talking about psychosocial treatments. Um, but there is truly a dosage effect for many behavioral health and addiction problems, but OCD for sure. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, the, the more complex 
the more complicated the OCD, and that is within OCD, also with comorbidity, right? I mean, how, you know, do they have other things going on, which we said is already the rule? Um, it, it's how much good ERP, how much high quality treatment do you need to get better? And there is this dosage effect. And many people, because of that level of disability, remember, it's the 10th leading cause of disability in the world, may need more than high quality one or two hours a week. So they may need intensive outpatient, which might be two, three hours a day, three to five times a week. They may need a day treatment program. They may need residential care uh, and that 24-hour support. Now, thankfully, uh, you know, that is a small minority of these patients, but it is enough that obviously there are specialty OCD residential programs that in that case, they have, they have enough time with this youngster to not only address the severe OCD, but these other comorbid problems as, as well. Yeah. So we, we had a, uh, you mentioned ERP. We have a, um, as you know, Southern California outpatient clinic that offer uh, OCD programs for teenagers mm -hmm. in, a, in an IOP uh, using mm -hmm. uh, ERP, uh, which, as you mentioned, is the gold standard. And we also offer a virtual IOP uh, OCD program, also using ERP as as the gold standard. We we once had a child who lived nearby one of our brick and mortar outpatient clinics and had enrolled in the OCD program, but could never get there. Um, they just weren't able to leave the house, and so there was part of it in terms of there was this initial, and it didn't mean that that first step we couldn't even accomplish. So fortunately, we were able to enroll in the virtual program as a first step with the main goal of helping this young boy, teen boy, be able to leave the home, first of yep. all, to be able yep. to transition to be, yep. since it was near his home and accessible to be there yep. in person and continue that treatment. Um, you know, we, we know that you recently co-authored an article on the benefits of telehealth for pediatric OCD. Would love if you could share a little bit sure. what you found in that study. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's it's interesting. And, and you brought up a perfect example. I mean, sometimes, um, you know, whether it's a child or an adult, I mean, they're debilitated enough by this condition and their anxiety that they're really not able to access care uh, outside of their home. Um, you know, COVID obviously changed everything. And uh, all of the programs that I had been associated with over the years were always in-person treatment, but we had to pivot uh, very, very quickly, right? Um, and within seven days, we transitioned, uh, you know, literally over a thousand patients that were receiving intensive treatment in IOP, PHP to telehealth um, because of the uh, you know, the pandemic, obviously. And we began to collect data immediately because we wanted to make sure that this treatment was still effective. Uh, this study that you mentioned um, that we published uh, really supports that. So to make a long story short, uh, now again, this is primary OCD um, in kids, and they're receiving three hours a day of treatment um, uh, a day or six hours a day of treatment in, in the day treatment or partial hospital programs. The outcomes were basically identical. Um, this treatment, when done in a high quality, structured, kind of protocolized or manualized fashion, produced equal outcomes in these, in these patients. The only difference is we needed two days longer 
for the telehealth IOP to get the same benefit, which was kind of an interesting little thing. It's not insignificant. I mean, especially if you're a payer, I mean, two extra days, there's a cost to that. But the bottom line is, is these kids got better equally telehealth or uh, in person. Now, what I think will be fascinating, Alex, and kind of the follow-ups to those things is we also, however, were aware that there were probably, you know, some young individuals who did not do as well telehealth. I mean, at the individual level, not at the group level with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients. There were probably people who didn't respond to telehealth who would have responded to in-person. And I think the, the interesting thing would be to kind of find out what predictors, you know, would we be able to, what kind of data could we collect from an individual who is considering treatment and say, you know what, Alex, based on your responses to this, you have a choice. You could do telehealth or in person or based on your responses here, you know, you really need to do in person. And and that ability to predict would be incredibly powerful. You brought up a, a perfect example of someone who could get geographic access to this clinic, but was too anxious. And the goal in treatment was to lower that to get him to come. But some, as you know, no matter how many clinics you have, say California that you brought up, it's an enormous state and you could still be four five, six hours away from your nearest uh, specialty clinic. And, and as a result, being able to plug in telehealth would be a huge advantage. Yeah. Yeah. It's really a great, uh, great study and great conclusion given the issues of accessibility and right. realizing that the vast majority of uh, teens who are struggling with OCD, vast majority uh, do not have geographic access to a right. high quality That's right. IOP for specialized in OCD or PHP using the gold standard of ERP. It's the vast majority don't have that. So knowing that there are these telehealth options that when done right uh, can provide similar outcomes. Yeah, yeah. And, and to your point, I mean, it, even though it's such a common problem, um, and it's such a treatable problem, the vast majority of sufferers do not have that geographic access. Uh, and, and obviously, you were mentioning the programs that Embark is opening up. That's welcomed, right? I mean, in other words, uh, the, 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 the demand exceeds the ability to provide, and, and these new programs are going to open up access to a lot of young people who need care. Uh, you mentioned uh, how treatable uh the disorder is. Can you share a little bit more that can provide some hope for if there's a teen or young adult watching this podcast or for a parent? Uh, what are some of those statistics or some of your experience around when when treatment is done well, standardized and uh, with protocols and, and using ERP with experienced clinicians? Uh, how treatable is it? Yeah. In my opinion, Alex, honestly, it's the most treatable psychiatric problem we have uh, when treated properly and properly being again defined as the right kind of treatment delivered in a high quality care and then the right quantity that we are talked about that dosage effect right and so plugging somebody into the appropriate level of care the majority of people with OCD can benefit from high quality ERP just one or two hours a week but then there's a subset of patients who just have to have more than that I mean it's just the dose isn't high enough um, and so then this is where the IOPs come into play. And in some cases, even those partial hospital programs or PHPs that provide six hours. And then, of course, residential for, thankfully, the minority of patients. But again, it is a fairly large number because of how common the problem is. 
but uh, it's very, very treatable. Just some examples. Um, you know, the, the overall kind of success rates that one will read about in the field, 80 to 85% of people who will engage in this treatment respond to care and get significantly clinically meaningfully better. Um, in, in my world, uh, you know, 90% of our IOP patients responded, 81% of our residential patients responded. And that's interesting because these residential patients were considered treatment refractory. You know, they, they were considered patients who were, were not able to get better from treatment. And it's all about the dose piece, right? They, they, they just didn't have enough dose of it. And once given that proper dosage, they got better. The reality of though is this, um, you get out of it what you put in it. And this is not a, a treatment, Alex, that one can benefit from passively. This is not something that one can absorb. Uh, it is one that you have to be an active participant in. And as a result, you know, when you hear things like 85% or 90% or whatever it might be, um, you know, there are patients who do put in effort who don't respond. Nothing's perfect. But the vast majority of patients who don't respond are, are unfortunately either unwilling or unable to really do the work that they need to do. It is, again, something where, uh, you know, it is an active engagement in this treatment. But if people do that, they get better. You mentioned about the doses and, and levels of care. Uh, something that's so important to be able to provide that is simply having a continuum of care where... Right starting at that lower level of care, maybe that one or two hours a week is able to address the issue. But if it's not, we want to move to that three hours a day, three times a week. And if that doesn't work, yeah. three hours a day, yeah. five times a week, then five, six hours a day in RTC, being able to step up and that's good, just good healthcare, a good yes. healthcare system where yes. we intervene at the lowest level of care possible, yes. least invasive, try to get that to work. But if it doesn't, we can quickly step up so we can nip, nip it in the bud and then step them back down. It's less expensive, less invasive. That continuum of care is really important for delivering good outcomes. And as you pointed out, both up and down. In, in other words, you know, um, if somebody is in a residential program, you know, as you know, Alex, the goal is not to get them symptom-free. It, the goal is to get them to the point where they're, um, you know, responding to care that they don't need 24-hour support anymore. And then if they go right into outpatient, if they go from that to one hours a week, that's kind of a big thud, if you will. And 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 the and and to your point, in 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 a medicine, in in a you know general medical surgical world, you know, there's these step downs, and that's exactly what we have to build in our world. And and so it's it's being able to ratchet it up if they need more dose, but then it's that stepping down as well. And 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 the key here, you know, to your point, Alex, is that even if someone has tried what they believe is truly high quality ERP, you don't want to throw the ERP baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. You don't want to sit back and say, well, we tried that and it didn't work. It could be again that the, the dose of the treatment you were receiving did not match the severity and the complexity of what you needed. Yeah, yeah, and I, I love that you brought up the kind of general healthcare is uh, you don't see people going to get knee surgery and then being sent home without a brace or any physical therapy. It wouldn't go very well. Yeah. And no. they have follow-ups with their doctor, but often that happens yeah. in our mental healthcare system for youth is they'll end up in a hospital or even a residential treatment center, and then afterwards discharged, 
and have, haven't seen improvements and go straight yes. home. It's yeah. as if you had knee surgery and you go straight home with no physical therapy. That doesn't mean the knee surgery right. wasn't effective. That's it right. means you didn't do the proper continuum, continuing That's care right. uh, needed. That's so right. developing more of that. How, how, if I'm a parent and I'm looking for a therapist, because it may be the one to two hours, or maybe you have been doing the one or two hours, but it's not yeah. working. And so I want a higher dose. So I'm looking for an IOP or the PHP, partial yeah. hospitalization program, therapeutic day treatment program, or even RTC. And I'm a parent. What should I be looking for? What should I be Googling? What type of treatments exist? What type of programs are there out there? And uh, how, how can you guide me a little bit to making sure that it is high quality and that I know that we likely are going to get the right dosage, the right interventions and treatments uh, that are the most effective. Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, and again, in the OCD realm, you know, the, the, the thing that you are looking for is exposure and response prevention, or again, sometimes referred to as exposure and ritual prevention. It's the same treatment, ERP nonetheless. That is the key ingredient you're looking for. You don't want to just find someone who says they treat OCD. Um, you don't want to find someone who says they use evidence-based treatment. You know, evidence-based treatment, Alex, is, is this idea that research has found this treatment to work for this condition. Um, but when we think about evidence-based treatment, we also have to make sure, yeah, but that clinician can apply that evidence-based treatment to patients just as well as that study did, right? So, you know, I, I can... I can say I do these things, but that doesn't mean I really know uh, what to do. And so you got to do your homework. Most people spend more time picking out the person who's going to tile their bathroom than they do their mental health care provider, unfortunately. You know, right, Alex? And so you got to do your homework. You have to do your due diligence. And you want to make sure that they do this. You want to ask them, how many patients with OCD have you treated? How many have you treated successfully? Um you know, if they're starting to use some of the jargon, um, ERP, obviously, or exposure work or exposure hierarchies, and that's just a big master list of all of the exposures that, that this uh, young person with OCD is going to have to do, that's starting to ring some bells. Um, but, you know, ask questions. I mean, be informed. Uh, this is important. And uh, sadly, there are not that many people who specialize in this. We did mention the International OCD Foundation before they do have a tab, find a therapist. I'm assuming parents could reach out to Embark uh, and, and Embark would also steer people in the right direction. I mean, obviously you might have a, a program that could help them in the vicinity that they live, or you could direct them elsewhere. Um, but it, it, it takes um, a very specific kind of intervention to be effective and, 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 the, and the dose, uh, to your point. Uh, speaking of dose, uh, can you discuss a little bit the role of medication in treating yeah. OCD? What, yeah. what are the considerations and what should parents know about medication and OCD? Yeah, so, the, so there are medicines that have been found to be helpful, uh, Alex, in treating OCD. Um, these medicines all come from a subset of antidepressants that affect a brain chemical called serotonin. Um, the good news we mentioned before that, you know, like for example, depression is a common comorbid condition. So if you have a youngster with OCD who is also depressed, these medicines kind of give you a little bit of a double whammy or a two for one. Uh, you know, you're kind of helping nudge that depression along as well as the OCD. 
Um, these medicines uh, provide somewhere between 25 and 30% symptom reduction in the average patient. Some people get much more reduction than that. Some people, unfortunately, get none. But on average, you can expect about a 25 to 30% symptom reduction, which could be the difference between being able to go to school or not, or being able to go to work or not, or being able to engage in social relationships or not. The medicines are rarely enough in and of themselves. Uh, and ERP is really, again, considered the gold standard. So uh, there was an expert consensus study done many years ago that I participated in. And, and the consensus of the expert OCD community was that everyone with OCD should get exposure and response prevention. Some should get exposure and response prevention plus medication. Great. Thank you. As you had mentioned earlier, it's the 10th leading cause of disability. And there are millions of people in the United States who are affected by OCD. Uh, so more, a lot more common than people know. In fact, uh, my guess is some people may be surprised to know that Cameron Diaz and Leonardo DiCaprio uh, and Justin Timberlake uh, mm -hmm. are all living with OCD. And uh, I share that just to uh, open up a question around awareness and stigma. Uh, what would you recommend and what advice would you give? What steps can individuals take to raise awareness about OCD and reduce that stigma and advocate for better understanding and support? Yeah, no, and as you pointed out, I mean, there's been many famous people over over the centuries and certainly even currently um, that have that. And, and, and I do think, Alex, that that does help, and especially young people. I mean, you know, if, if you look up to athletes or movie stars or musicians and, and you know, it just, it does normalize things. And I think, you know, to, to fight stigma, that is what you have to have is normalization. Um, you're not crazy. You're not weird. You have a medical condition, right? And, and, and we unfortunately separate out mind from body. Um, th this is a medical condition. As I said, every year we get more and more evidence that it is truly a neurobiological issue, a medical issue. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's the key. I mean, it just realize that there are many people out there with this condition, some famous, most not, but many people with this condition. And then I think just the, the hope of treatment. I mean, you know, I think... Um, you know, knowing that there is effective care out there and that there is hope uh, and there is help also, you know, dramatically reduces all that fear and stigma as well. I love the overarching uh, message of, of hope, and particularly the evidence that this is uh, one of the most treatable of uh, behavioral health conditions. Uh, what else would you leave parents and others and the family or community or friends who have a loved one who's struggling with OCD? Any, any parting thoughts uh, or comments you'd want to share with them? Yeah. Um, you know, it is common. Uh, it is very debilitating, unfortunately. And, and it rarely goes away on its own, Alex. Again, I never say never, but it really doesn't. It, it, it's going to take intervention, medication, ERP or a combination of the two. Um, and if anything, it tends to continue to kind of exacerbate over time, right? So in youth, it tends to kind of continue to escalate. Then somewhere in, you know, young adulthood, late 20s, maybe around 30, it, for most, it tends to plateau off. But it's plateauing off at a pretty debilitating level, right? 
And so, you know, it is common, it's debilitating, it's not going to go away on its own. And there are resources to help. And, and, and you're just going to have to, again, kind of roll up your sleeves and find the right provider. The good news is, is you know, there are more and more trained providers every year. Uh, there are more and more intensive programs every year, still not nearly enough. Uh, and then to your point, if you don't have geographic access, you might be able to plug into a good telehealth program. And the good news is insurance tends to support these programs. Um, you know, they, they, insurance understands OCD. It understands how debilitating it is. And it understands it's not just a whim or a phase that Johnny's going through. And if anything, it's going to get worse. And so they do support uh, uh, treatments and including intensive treatments. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. Raymond, so much for your time. We're yeah. really grateful for your clinical leadership and clinical expertise. And we love that we're partnered together and working together now as you're part yeah. of uh, Embark team on, on developing more comprehensive and ho even higher quality and more accessible treatment interventions and programs. And thank you again for your time today. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. It was great to have Dr. Riemann on to talk about OCD. We appreciate you following, liking, and sharing this episode. Uh, you can go to where you can find all podcasts or our YouTube channel to follow. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you on the next one.